The Bible makes a lot of things very clear, especially the, the essential things very clear. But when it comes to non-essential things, like what exactly will go down during the end times, uh, good Bible-believing Christians can disagree, and they do disagree on what exactly things will happen, how exactly things will um, transpire during the end times. And a part of this is because when it comes to the end times, nothing will be absolutely certain until the end is here. And we confirm what these apocalyptic passages were actually talking about. Um, nothing is crystal clear until the end is actually here. So until the end comes, we need to be humble about how we interpret these apocalyptic, a lot of symbolic passages that talk about the end. You all know the movie Sixth Sense, right? Okay, I am not responsible for spoiling this movie if you have not seen this by now. Uh, it's a very old movie. Um, but in the movie The Sixth Sense, if you watch it all the way to the end, right, and you reach the, the masterful, very, you know, twist, plot twist at the end, Bruce Willis was dead all along. Okay, there you go. Um, then suddenly all the previous scenes in the entire movie start making sense. And you actually want to go back and watch those scenes again because then you realize, oh, that's why this happened and that happened, right? The, the, the ending, right, uh, explains the rest of the, the movie. So it's one of those movies that make you kind of withhold judgment um, until you get to the end because you won't be able to make full sense of everything until you get to the end. And apocalyptic passages of the Bible should be viewed in, in a similar light. We have to be approaching it with a measure of humility until we actually reach the end. But, at the same time, as much as this is like one of those non-essential passages, it shouldn't be neglected because, here's the thing, how you interpret it will affect how you live. How you interpret apocalyptic passages, how you understand the end will affect your everyday decisions, your, your, the way you, you um, pursue a career, the way you make financial decisions, uh, the, way, the way you choose to raise your family. It, it affects everyday decisions depending on how you interpret it. So as, even though it's a non-essential issue, meaning interpreting a certain way won't affect whether you go to heaven or not, but it would affect the way you live on earth, very much so. So we do need to approach it with humility, but we have to approach it. You have to approach it with humility, but you actually have to approach it and not avoid it. Okay? Uh, avoiding it, actually is itself a view of the end times. Namely, that the end probably won't come during my lifetime. Right? That's your view of the end time. If you're avoiding passages about the end time, you're not thinking about the end time, you don't want to think about these apocalyptic, scary you know, passages, that, that's your view of the end time, that the end time won't come until you die. But that's, how do you know that? Right? Nobody knows that. Uh, so that's not a wise approach either. Now, what's helpful about this very lengthy passage, though, is Mark is just letting Jesus speak for himself without much of his own commentary, as if to say, listen carefully to what Jesus is saying and listen for what he is emphasizing and also notice what he's not emphasizing, okay? In other words, let Jesus guide you in what is clear, what is plain, and perhaps even essential. And, and let the rest be approached with humility and, uh, and, and be okay with uncertainty in, in some of the other areas. So what I'm going to do is pick out three facts from this passage that are very clear, very plain, uh, that virtually all Christians should agree upon, 
And it's actually quite essential for us to believe when it comes to end times. Three facts that we have to hold on to. One, that Jesus Christ will return. Two, that the world as we know it currently will come to an end. And three, we must, that we must live in light of the return of the King. Okay? So that's the outline, and let's look at it one at a time. Number one, that Jesus Christ will return. Jesus will come again. This is something all Christians, virtually all Christians agree upon regarding the end times. The truth that Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally at the end to judge and renew the world. Almost a quarter of the New Testament actually talks about this, that Jesus will come again. A quarter of the New Testament is about the second coming of Christ. So naturally, if you, are, if you identify yourself as a Bible-believing Christian, okay, uh, you're someone who firmly believes in the fact that Jesus will one day return, literally. Okay. And that's a central point he, Jesus is making here as well, uh, mainly in verses 24 to 27. So take a look at verse 24 and on. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now what Jesus is doing here is actually quoting a lot of Old Testament um, passages. For example, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. That's apocalyptic language commonly seen in Isaiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Amos. It was language that's used to describe the end times in terms of something global happening, okay? Uh, as opposed to something local, something that only pertains to Israel or something like that. It's talking about everything under the sun, everything under the moon will be affected by this um, apocalyptic event. It's, it's this sort of cosmic event this cosmic undoing of the world. Right? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Um, now, because this language belongs in this ancient apocalyptic genre, okay, we need to be careful to not take this as sort of literal kind of weather forecast uh, when, when the end will come. Okay? So we should look out for when the solar eclipse is happening, when the moon is not visible. Okay, Jesus is probably coming soon. For example, you know, if, if we, we use figurative phrases like, it's, it's raining cats and dogs, right? If, if someone were to read about our weather forecast 2,000 years later and had no knowledge about our idioms, our figure of speech, they will find that very confusing, right? What are they talking about? Did they actually see cats and dogs raining from the sky? So similarly, we have to try to approach these apocalyptic language contextually and historically and not just impose how we understand that language onto the text. So, and this, again, this is why this is a difficult text. Uh, the prophet's intentions were, when you look at it in the context of the Old Testament passages, to give us not a literal weather forecast, but to describe for us something that is truly cosmic in its proportions, something only a divine power can control and bring about. And that makes sense of the reference to the Son of Man that comes next in verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, which is taken directly out of Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man comes as the ancient one who will judge the world finally and establish his kingdom 
forever. Okay? So the image is, there's this cosmic and apocalyptic event that will come as the Son of Man, the Ancient One, comes to finally judge the world. So, you know, Jesus' first coming, right, was very much in weakness and as a servant to suffer evil, to, to die for the sins of his people. But the second time Jesus will come, it's going to be totally different. Totally different. He will come in strength. He will come as a king. He will come not quietly in a manger where only a few people know about. The whole world will see. The whole world will see this. It's a cosmic event. And he's going to come and vanquish all evil. Not to forgive evil anymore, but to vanquish evil. He will rid the world of evil once and for all and fill the world with his beauty, his glory, his majesty. So the, this cosmic undoing he's going to uh, bring about through this cosmic undoing, a new cosmos, a new world, a new kingdom, or what Revelation calls new heaven and new earth. So this is one of the, the main kind of theological practical points of any ap ap apocalyptic passage in the, in the Bible, and that is God is still in control. He's always been in control. He will always be in control. So despite the, the terrible persecutions, tribulations, trials, suffering in, in the life of the saints, in the life of the church, uh, be assured history is still heading to where God always intended it to. Okay? It's still linear. It's still going somewhere. And, and it's going to end in this conclusion, this purposeful conclusion at the coming of Jesus Christ the King. Okay? That's the main point. He has the power to bring this about and he's the king who is still in control. The point is not for us to worry about the details of the, of the end times and try to figure out, you know, when exactly, where exactly will we see this. But to grab onto this most practical point, Jesus will return as king and everyone's going to know about it because that's who he is. And his return will mark this renewal of a, uh, a new creation. As it says in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay. Um, you know, people are still talking about revolutions today, right? Still crying out for some new socioeconomic or political order. Somewhere around the world there's, there's protests and riots. When Jesus brings the end, okay, and, and brings his kingdom, he's going to end all revolutions. It will be the end to all protests, all riots, all boycotts. Okay. Why? Because all of that really is, what that is, is really crying out for a perfect rule and perfect reign, a perfect government, and Jesus is going to bring that. In a way, we're all directly or indirectly crying out for his second coming when we complain about something, when we protest something, when we say so-and-so should be voted out of the office, so-and-so should be voted in the office. We're all indirectly or directly crying out for this perfect rule and reign of Christ. And that's coming. And, and when Jesus is king, he will perfect not only his people, but his world as well. So this is the first point, that Jesus will come. Okay, that's a very plain fact that's made clear in this passage. Here's a second point, and it kind of connects to the first point. And that is the world as we know it currently will come to an end. It will come to an end. 
This emphasis is super clear. In addition to the verses we just looked at, we can also see this emphasis from verses 30 through 33. So take a look from verse 30. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth, and heaven is sky in Greek. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. So what Jesus makes clear here is not when the end will come. That's what he makes explicitly unclear is the when. Uh, What he makes clear is that the end will come. Not when the end will come, but that the end will come. Heaven and earth will pass away. And by the way, not all that controversial of a claim, not some scary apocalyptic religious language. The world as we know it will come to an end according to scientists. Even within their own sort of naturalistic worldview, materialistic worldview, the sun will die out eventually and the universe will suffer this heat death and, and no life form will survive. Okay. It, This cosmos, this universe, as it were, is going through this inevitable cosmic climate change, as it were. The sun's dying out, and there's nothing anybody can do about that, okay? What's the difference? What's the difference between the naturalist view of the end times and the Christian view of the end times? It's all in this word in verse 31 that we just glossed over. We We totally took for granted. Verse 31, take another look. Heaven and earth will pass away, but, but my words will not pass away. We take that word but for granted when we really shouldn't. Um, do you remember juxtaposition in English Lit, English 101, um, when, when, when you put two things that don't seem to go together side by side in close proximity and it does this interesting contrast kind of thing. So the classic example is Charles Dickens opening lines in Tale of Two Cities, right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Right? It, was the, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. Right? That's juxtaposition. That's what we have here. Everything will come to an end. My words will not pass away. Right? Uh, things that don't seem to go together play side by side. And that's something that's only possible. This juxtaposition is only possible within a Christian worldview. Where you have everything that's going to end, but something that won't end on the other hand. And that's Christ and his word, his promises. And this for us is very important. For those of us who are Christians, it's very important to realize um, that this is such a tremendous concept, the end. Okay? When we realize what the end really is, that is when we really realize the, this other tremendous concept, our faith in Jesus Christ. It's this but that brings us to the other side of, of the end, of nothingness our faith in Christ. Because everything else will pass away. It's when we truly realize that it will all come to an end. That is when we will truly look to Christ alone for something that will not end. Namely, like His steadfast love. Like we, we heard in our call to worship. Everything will pass away, but but not his steadfast love. That is that's what the psalmist says. My, your, your steadfast love is better than life. Why? My life will pass away. That's why. But not your steadfast love for me. 
the more we, we Christians meditate upon this and consider this, the end, the finality of everything, the better we will come to realize that our faith in Christ is all that matters. It's, it's not his, our faith in Christ is not ultimately so that we would build a happier, wealthier, healthier life here on earth. But it's so that we would, by faith in Jesus, live even from now on earth with the hope of eternity. We're actually called to live more like pilgrims and aliens, homeless people here on earth. People who are homesick for their true home, waiting for their true home. So a, a, a good diagnostic question for us is this. Are you longing more for Jesus to return and heal this broken and fallen world and restore his kingdom? Or are you striving more to build a comfortable home for you, for your family, in this broken and fallen world? What are you more preoccupied with? The kingdom that is to come and renew this whole world or building your home? in the here and now? What are you actually busying yourselves with? See, if your answer is the latter, you're striving to build a more comfortable home here in this broken, fallen world, then according to Jesus, you're, you're asleep. You'll be one of those people when the master returns, will find sleeping. Or to use another parable Jesus used, you'll be this bride who had no oil in her lamp when the bridegroom arrived and you miss the bridegroom. Or to use another passage, it's to whom people, it's the people to whom Jesus will say, I, depart from me, I never knew you. So see, this is the tension even for the disciples. Look, if you look even from verse one, here's what they're saying in verse one. Look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? And Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Right? The disciples want to call this great temple, this beautiful temple, their permanent home. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to take that down. So this is kind of like, this is me. This is kind of like my kids, you know, when we're at a restaurant, they, they get you know, these crayons and drawing paper. And they draw on it while we wait for the food. And then when the food comes out, they want, it, they want me to roll it up so we can take it home. And, and my question is, why? Because you'll end up not caring about it anyway, it'll end up in the trash can. I mean, you did good, it's, it's beautiful, it's wonderful what you drew, but it'll end up in the trash can, so why? Um, it almost sounds like that, right? Crushing their dreams. He literally crushed their dreams. It, um, the thing is, Jesus' prophecy came true, it came true in 70 AD. When, when the Roman army came under Titus and destroyed the uh, Jerusalem temple, literally no stone was left on the other. Which, which side note is another reason why we, we need to be careful to read these end time passages as if they have direct correlation to our time because some of it has already come true. They have already come true in the past. So the temple was violently destroyed in 70 AD, although it used to be this vast and majestic building. And what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And... Turns out, for the disciples, right, that's where they put their hope and that's where they put their faith. Calvin comments on this this way. This, the vast size and wealth of the temple 
like a veil hung before the eyes of the disciples, did not permit them to elevate their faith to the true reign of Christ. Like a veil hung before their eyes, did not permit them to elevate their faith to the true reign of Christ. Their faith, in other words, was in the temple, not in Christ. And Jesus, you gotta wake up to this. You gotta wake up to your obsession with the material and the physical existence here on this earth, here in this life. It's gonna pass away, it won't last. He's saying even the temple won't last. The temple is a gift from God, it's a mandate from God. Even that will come to an end. And he's saying that's okay because that was never the good news. The good news was never you get a temple. The gospel is never about securing this physical home on earth. The good news was that you can secure the most important thing in your life, your relationship with God, simply by putting your faith in Jesus and in his word. And his words will not pass away. See, Jesus is elevating the disciples' faith from, from this earthly existence to, to him, to Christ. In a very pastoral way, he's showing them, your faith is in the wrong place. It's not in Christ, it's in the temple. It's in something created by man. It's in something that will pass away. And this is how the Israelites often thought too. You know, when they had the temple, they thought, oh God, God must like us. And then when they lose the temple, God must hate us. I don't know about you, but I can totally see myself in that, reflected in that. You know, when, when things in life are good, God's favor is upon me. But when there's suffering, when there's trials, when there's sickness, when there's tribulation, I'm tempted to think, oh, God must be punishing me. He must be coming after me for something I've done in the past to deserve this. But see, that's faith in our circumstances, not in Christ and his words. We're judging everything according to our circumstances, even the rightness of our relationship with God, according to our circumstances, not according to Jesus and his words. So if the message behind the first point was Jesus is still in control, He's going to bring this about. The message behind the second point is stop loving the world. Okay? And you notice too, this is, uh, this discourse is three years into Jesus' walk with the disciples. Meaning, at a slightly more mature stage in the disciples' walk with Jesus. And I, and I, and I don't know if you noticed this, but in the past few weeks as we go through this Gospel of Mark, I think as we approach this final teaching ministry of Jesus' life, we find he is giving them harder sayings, tougher things to swallow. Hasn't he been doing that, right? Here I think we have a similar sort of thing, you know, it's like, it's me telling my kids, you know, what's the point? It's gonna end up in the trash, what's the point? This is Jesus telling, stop loving the world so much. What's the point of loving the world so much? What's the point of building a comfortable, permanent home here on this earth so so diligently when it's all gonna be dust? It's all gonna pass away. We have to be careful to put our faith in, in Jesus and hope in his promises and not in the circumstances of this life so we won't, we won't be led astray. It says here, many, not some, many will be led astray 
And that's a scary thought, right? So literally, when we are, when we're walking towards the, the, the gates of heaven, let's say, I don't know if we're actually walking, I don't know if we'll just be floating in there, I don't know, I have no idea, but it's, in, it's up to your imagination. We're all, let's say, heading towards the gates of heaven. And when we look around and we see the people who are not headed towards heaven, the thought that will come to our mind is, that's way more than I thought. Right? That's what many means. The people that you may have thought would enter heaven may not be entering heaven. And the people you thought may not enter heaven would actually be entering heaven too. But, but the thought you will have is, what, that many? That many have been led astray? That's what the word many means. It's a, it's a sobering word. And this is why the, the most repeated command in this passage is not, go figure out when the end time will be. Okay? Go make a movie about the end times. Write some fictional book. No! The most repeated command here is to be on guard and stay awake. Stay awake. Be on guard. See that no one leads you astray. He says that in verse 9 and in the middle of the passage and all the way to the end. Stay awake. And, and he tells us exactly how. How are we to stay awake? How are we to stay watchful? As if Jesus will return at any moment. Be watchful as if Jesus will return at any moment. And, and when he does, all of this will come to an end. Our marriage will come to an end. Our parenting comes to an end. Our career comes to an end. Our home ownership comes to an end. Money in our bank comes to an end. Everything comes to an end. Live as though Jesus will come at any moment and the end will come. That's what he says in verses 35 and 36. Therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. He will come suddenly. Live as though he will come suddenly. Stay awake. Keep your faith in Christ, not in the things that will end. Put your hope in Jesus and not in this material existence that will pass away. Stay awake. Don't be led astray. It's a hard saying. And that's why in the passage, in the middle, let the, let the reader who can take this, take this. That's what he says. it's a mark of maturity it's a mark of it's a sign of maturity if you can take this if you can not only not only understand it but but obey it oh, I better stay awake Jesus could come tonight he could come tomorrow I better stay awake and the and the implication of that the immediate application of that is we have to love and worship Jesus did you notice that the reason why we worship is because this world as we know it will come to an end and there's nothing in this world worth worshiping? And that's how we come here and worship Jesus. To say, Lord, there's literally nothing in this world that will last. There's nothing in this world worth worshiping. You alone are worth worshiping and that's why we're here. Did you know that? 
We're here because it's all going to end. And we're here to say, we know the one thing that will not end. It's Christ and His Word. That's what we're here to worship. We know the one thing that will not pass away. That's the purpose of our worship. It's to rehearse this. To remind ourselves of this. And it's so that we will be ready when Jesus returns. With our faith firmly placed in Him. Not in our earthly life. Not in our earthly comforts. The, the shadowy things that were meant to point us to God. Not replace Him. That's what it means to stay awake. To be worshipful of God for His steadfast love. Keeping our faith in Him. Relying on His power. Keeping our eyes on His glory. Living to please Him. We are to live every day, every moment like, like our King could be returning any moment. Because He will. And the end will come. And, and all, everything will be forgotten. Everything will actually be meaningless unless it's somehow tied to Christ and His kingdom. I don't know if you knew that as well. Nothing will be remembered. Nothing will be meaningful in the afterlife unless it's somehow connected to Christ and his kingdom. It's what C.T. Studd famously wrote in his poem. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Okay, what does living like that look like? Living as if the king will return at any moment. Okay, that's the last point. Other than gathering here and worshiping on Sunday, which is paramount, okay, uh, what else, what other implications does this have for us? Um, and this is the last point, that we must live in light of the return of the king. And I'm going to give you four, four signs uh, that will manifest if you truly live in light of the return of the king. The, the first sign is that you will live a balanced life. Um, Tim Keller points out in his commentary, he says, because we know that Jesus will return, but not when Jesus will return, we can have this wonderful balance in living out our societal life and spiritual life. It's both and. If, he says, on the one hand, we knew exactly when Jesus was coming back, let's say sometime next month, if you knew sometime next month Jesus is coming back, we would probably all quit our jobs, leave all our societal civic duties aside, and go try to share the gospel with a few people and try to bring our loved ones to Christ and completely disengage from society. But that is not, that has no place in the New Testament. That is not how the New Testament saints have lived their lives. And that is why we don't know exactly when Jesus will return. We don't want to live lives of disengaged from society, disengaged from the people that we should be serving um, outside the church for 20, 30, 40 years, or even for our lifetime, and realize, oh, I, could have, I could have loved my neighbors. I could have served them in so many ways. We have to be good stewards of every sphere of life that our master has steward, uh, called us to steward, entrusted, entrusted to us. And if, on the other hand, we know if we knew Jesus could not come back soon, or come back at all, uh, we might lose our sense of urgency in engaging in spiritual life, in sharing the gospel with others, and living a life that is pleasing to God. So, the risk here is 
being disengaged from spiritual life, the life of the church, serving the kingdom of God, giving to the kingdom of God. And that's just as mistaken as being disengaged from societal life because we are called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that he has commanded. We're to be engaged in spiritual life. Uh, Lewis put it like this, C.S. Lewis put it like this. Think of a woman's makeup mirror. In a dark room, a woman can use a lighted mirror to put on her makeup in such a way that she will look good when she's in sunlight. You anticipate how you will look in the sunlight, even in a dark room, with a dim light. And you prepare yourself. You prepare yourself for when you're actually going to be in the sunlight. He says, in the same way we are to dress ourselves morally and spiritually every day in such a way that we could bear the inbreaking of that irresistible light of his presence from heaven. The doctrine of the second coming, therefore, leads us to live with that kind of immediacy. A balanced life of the immediacy of Christ's second coming and also the, the very presence of your society, the people around you that you're called to serve and called to care for. You will live a balanced life. You will not totally disengage from societal life or totally disengage from spiritual life. There's great benefit to us not knowing when and only knowing that. Uh, secondly, living in light of Christ's return looks like freedom from all perfectionism. Perfectionism. And the workaholism that leads us to strive to achieve that kind of perfectionism. At the same time, not giving up on perfection altogether. Here's why. From Christ's return, we get Christian hope and endurance because it teaches us the already but not yet reality of the kingdom, meaning the promised kingdom that is not yet actualized fully. So that means while we are living on this earth, we live as pilgrims, aliens, in this sort of imperfect, broken, and fallen world. And so that means the way we approach our problems and frustrations is with hope because we understand nothing in the here and now is supposed to work perfectly. No relationship is supposed to be appearing to us like a, like a smooth ride. Not on this side of heaven. Not, on, not in this broken and fallen world. We shouldn't therefore expect that or demand that somehow. But have hope in the kingdom, perfect kingdom that is to come. Nothing is perfected yet, but perfection is coming. And so on the one hand, it frees us from this utopian approach to the world and to our relationships, to our work. At the same time, we don't give up on it. We don't, we don't give up pursuing excellence. Why? Because excellence is coming. It's coming. So it's still worth pursuing, although it's not something we should demand. And as Jesus has shown us through the miracles of the kingdom, the signs of the kingdom, right? Healing of the bodies, feeding the multitudes, raising the dead. These are signs that predict this and kind of prophesy this, this coming kingdom. So as believers of this kingdom and followers of this king, we're to imitate this coming kingdom in the here and now. Bring healing to others. Bring redemption to your relationship. Bring reconciliation. Bring forgiveness. All these things that make sense of the coming kingdom. Third, living in light of the returning of the king looks like forgiveness in light of injustice. Love in light of injustice. Because judgment day is coming and it's going to be scary. 
uh, this is critical actually, this is very important for us to understand as we live un in this unjust world. In this world where people cut you off in traffic, people take advantage of you, where people mistreat you, people abuse you verbally, emotionally, perhaps even physically. How do we not take matters into our own hands? How do we not take vengeance into our own hands? How do we not lash out in anger if you believe in the perfect justice of God on the day of judgment? There's simply no other way. We don't need to take vengeance if this is true. If vengeance is in God's hands, we can live free from anger, free from bitterness, free from the desire for vengeance. Lastly, when you live in light of the returning of the king, you will realize whatever you suffered or lost, you can still live with a wonderful confidence and boldness. Because we know that as Christians, we can lose the battle but not the war. If the king is coming enthroned, bringing his kingdom down to earth, he's won. He's won. So no matter how many battles we may lose and how ugly those battles, those battles were, we can trust that our victorious king is coming and gonna share that victory with us. We don't have to be discouraged by how things are going in our lives right now. We can feel even uh, that we've been wronged, but we can trust that Jesus is coming and he's gonna make all things right. So the bottom line is, why, why does the Bible talk to us about the second coming of Jesus Christ when it's not gonna tell us when? when it's not gonna tell us exactly how things are gonna go down, you know, play by play. Why is this here? To inspire us to live by faith in the here and now in Jesus Christ, trusting in his promises. Because it's gonna make, like I said in the beginning, it's gonna make every difference in the way that you live here on earth. It's gonna impact every decision that you make depending on how you perceive the end. Have you truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you elevated your faith above the material world? Has the veil been lifted? Do you see that everything in this life will pass away? It's not worth hoping in, it's not worth putting your trust in, but only Christ alone? Have you done that? Are you looking for him to save you from your sins, to give you the right to become a child of God and to bring you into his eternal kingdom? He can return any moment. And your answer to this question is the most single important answer you can ever have. Put your faith in him and then live for him as if he's coming back with his kingdom. Put your faith in him and live as if he's coming back with his kingdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word. Lord, uh, it, is, it is in many ways difficult to swallow. Lord, but we confess it is due to the many ways we have placed so many of our hopes and dreams and plans and investments into this life, into this world that is passing away, that will come to an end. And God, I pray that you, as you had so pastorally led your disciples, that you would send your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and pastor us and shepherd us into this new faith that's firmly placed in Christ alone, and that we would build our lives not on a foundation that's going to be swept away by, by circumstances, but that is going to be secure and, and firmly built upon the rock, your son, Jesus Christ. May our faith be found in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.